Oh yeah, I love Billions. Oh yeah. You've never watched it? No, no, no. I just did um whatchamacallit and really dug it. I, I know they're not the same, but I've always Oh Succession? Succession, yeah. Yeah. I mean they're similar. I, I think Billions is oddly more technical in its language. Yeah. But also like sillier. Like a little more okay. grandiose. And I love Paul Giamatti. Oh, you love Paul. Yeah. Oh Paul. Just Paul. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> on a first name basis buddies well megan megan actually worked with him recently she was in a volkswagen commercial with him oh i saw her i saw her with him. I saw the yeah, commercial. yeah she said he was super duper nice she had a great time with paul very cool yeah with paul good old paul i've heard nothing but good things about old paul <laughs> <laughs> all right everyone welcome back to liquid bread a podcast and friend of paul giamatti i'm maddie <laughs> smith with me is my buddy, Larry Bates. Hey, what it do? What it do? Also with us, his brother-in-law, Master Cicerone. And because I didn't think of another title, I'll use the original Hop Creep again. Rich Higgins. <laughs> hey, guys. Hey, hey. hey guys, I have, a I have a confession to make. Do it. I have no story to tell. Oh, you said there was that a was story to a, tell last time. Yeah, and I was just doing that. Just that as, was our cliffhanger. It would work as like some sort of a cliffhanger. What do we just do now? Tease. Yeah, you know, eating something. What are you eating? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm chewing really loud. I'm sorry. Let me stop. It's a Twizzler. I'll stop. <laughs> I'll stop. Well, thanks for the uh, thanks for the honesty. Let's get back into it. All right. So we're we're back for part two of the new Albion story. Uh, when we last left you, we had discussed Fritz Maytag and the Anchor Brewing Company. Jack McAuliffe went on a tour of the brewery, and that was where he apparently had his inspiration to take all of his homebrewing experience and start an actual brewery of his own. While he didn't have the resources of Maytag, he had the creativity and engineering know-how to turn that lack into an advantage and create a personal, one-of-a-kind brewery all his own. He also had years of experimenting with his own beer without concern for sales or profitability. So, he trekked 40 miles north from San Francisco up to the much more affordable Sonoma, rented a corrugated steel warehouse, and went to work. Rich, you lived up in Sonoma, right? Or up in that area? No, I lived in San Francisco. Oh, you were in Frisco. And For some reason, I thought you were up near like Santa Rosa. I was not in Frisco. I was in San Francisco. I guess I just think of you as synonymous with the Russian River Brewery. <laughs> well, I'm happy to have that, that, that uh, impression, but no, I got nothing. When I met you, you or not met you originally, but when I met up with you in, in Belgium, you did have a, a grocery bag filled with Pliny the Elder bottles. Yes, those that stuff's like currency breweries and restaurants I, I hand that stuff out it's like candy they love it sonoma i love visiting there it's uh north of san francisco and it's no longer uh affordable it's just as bad as san francisco it's not just as bad but it's pretty bad when it came to building the identity of his brewery mcauliffe had this to say history is important in the brewing industry but if you don't have a history you can just make it up <laughs> <laughs> wow. Hey, Rich, as someone who's uh, heard Jack McAuliffe talk, uh, how how accurate was that? Uh, Jack has a, yeah, that's crazy falsetto. That oh, oh let me try let me, let me try it again. There you go. This, this crazy crazy falsetto. Yeah. History is important <laughs> in the brewing industry. But if you don't have history, you can just make it up. <laughs> Better? Can we, can we remind ourselves that our listeners probably have not... Um, been drinking beer the entire time that we have. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Let me try. Let me try one more time. Let me try one more. Time. <laughs> one more. This is the one. History <laughs> is important <laughs> in the brewing industry, but if you don't have a history, you can just make it up. 
Stop! He became a Batman villain on that last one. <laughs> We're nothing if not respectful to the history of beer. Hey, yeah, right. Exactly. So Jack McAuliffe named the brewery New Albion, a name with two historical references. First, to San Francisco's long-defunct Albion Brewing Company, and second, to explorer Sir Francis Drake, who had claimed the San Francisco area for Queen Elizabeth I as Nova Albion, or New mm. England. Now, McAuliffe... Sorry, Native Americans. Whenever discussing hey, I history... In, there's... I lived in San Francisco for a long time. I, I get to be a, a wet blanket on, on stuff. <laughs> <laughs> now, McAuliffe decorated his bottles with an image of Drake's ship in front of the California landscape, smoothly establishing his beer as a part of California's history. Now, McAuliffe assembled the brewery... Him... Oh, sorry. Sorry, I had to burp. I had to burp. I've been drinking. <laughs> that happens, man. I don't think that's not allowed mm-hmm. on, the, uh, on, the, on the audio. Yeah, I just don't. When you're close to a mic, it can sound a little rough. Now, <laughs> McAuliffe assembled the brewery itself almost completely from scraps. He tore up the floor and replaced it with a sloped one ending in a drain. He salvaged milking equipment from closing Northern Californian dairy production facilities. So this is not sounding like the most rustic of breweries, to, to tell you the truth, because the sloped floor ending in a drain is a very good thing in a brewery. I've, I've worked in uh, breweries where the floor does not slope. Uh, well, or if it does, the drain is the highest point in the floor, so you can't get anything into the drain. It's a huge pain in the ass. So uh, obviously the, the New Albion Brewery was a rustic brewery, but I just want to put in a, a, a little footnote there. So he also he got a hold of 55-gallon drums no longer being used by Pepsi to ship syrup and welded them into a mash tun and various other pieces of brewing equipment. Since they couldn't afford pumps, he used gravity, having hot water flow from the roof down through the various stages of the brewing process. McAuliffe also lived upstairs in a makeshift apartment that was basically the brewery's attic. Maybe craziest of all, there was no potable water on site, so McAuliffe trucked it in himself as needed from a nearby well in the hills. That is truly crazy that's breweries rely on water so heavily so that sounds like hell of, a, hell of a task now Insane. for for help starting and operating the brewery mcauliffe first found Susie stern who'd moved to sonoma when her son started attending stanford stern was studying music and had no experience with brewing but like lewis and many others was won over by mcauliffe's passion maddie where did you go to college i went to stanford in fact <laughs> just like fritz maytag uh, Manny, can we remind who Lewis? Yeah. After the break. Oh yeah, I <laughs> I didn't write this like So yeah, it's just like Michael Lewis, that uh, the, the basically the head of the brewing department at UC Davis, um, who had also been won over by McAuliffe's passion. Uh, now Stern also brought in her friend Jane Zimmerman, who was studying to become a therapist. Uh, so I think it's worth noting there. You know, a very modern thing is people coming from other industries, not necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, coming up through. I mean, obviously, we've talked about the UC Davis brewing program, so that's definitely mm-hmm. a thing. It's also an industry where people can often pivot to it and come from different industries and bring in uh, unique experiences from other professions. Uh, so I was a city planner in my first career and before turning over really? to, uh, to beer. Perfect. I drank a lot of beer exactly. <laughs> while I, as a city planner. But What, um, what yeah. cities did you plan? I planned all the best cities. Nice. I love those. Yeah. So now Stern and Zimmerman not only invested in the brewery and served as a large source of its initial cash, but they took a crash course in brewing led by McAuliffe, and together the trio served as the brewery's entire workforce throughout its beginnings. McAuliffe, Stern, and Zimmerman, they brewed ale, porter, and stout every day, in numbers insignificant compared to a massive brewery, but were still able to sell out and gain some buzz in the area. Gain some buzz. They got some buzz, man, while giving a buzz. All they, re- all they relied on was making a good beer with natural ingredients, emulating styles unfamiliar to many Americans. 
As McAuliffe told the Washington Post, with a similar philosophy to Fritz Maytag, Let's real beer. All you have to do is make a good beer and it will sell. If you make good beer, if you put money into the ingredients of your beer, you don't have to pay for advertising. It's when you get into the mass market that you can't tell your beer from the others except by the, the difference in, in advertising. Now, I like that he went from a Batman villain to, <laughs> to a Scottish crazy grandma. <laughs> it, depends, it depends on the time of day, you know. <laughs> With this guy. Well, he was putting you know, on his press face. He's talking to the Washington Post. Yeah. That's a big, that's exactly. a major he's newspaper like, when he's outlet. At the crib, he's like, when he's at the crib, he's like, hi, hello. But when he's on, when he's, a, when he got a camera in front of him or he's on the mic, you know, he's a, it's a little different, you know, and he's a little, you know, a little bit more poised when he speaks, you know, it's just a little, a little different, you know. <laughs> now, I would like to interject that I'm not sure I feel entirely comfortable <laughs> with this <laughs> since this guy uh, did help create uh, some of the incredible beer in an industry. <laughs> we love that. Well, that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> what 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 you want me to be more serious? Is that it? Okay, let me see. No, no, no. I'm I'm fine with what we've got so far. I well, I'm going to say that the views ex- the views expressed in this podcast are not are Larry's only. Are Larry's only. <laughs> I don't know the guy. If you don't, don't like it, guy. call Larry. I don't at, know the guy. At talented Mr. Bates on Twitter. Send him. <laughs> I don't know the guy. I'm just doing my best. Jack, I'm a sorry for what Larry just did to you, man. Thank you for listening. Now, <laughs> it should be noted that the Oxford Companion to Beer says. The quality of New Albion's beer was somewhat inconsistent, wonderful at its best, but not always at its best. But that was just the cost of their micro-approach, and when it was great, it was great, and unlike anything anywhere else. Beer lovers made pilgrimages to, pilgrimages? That's a weird word to say out loud. Pilgrimages to Sonoma, hoping to catch McAuliffe on a day when he wouldn't just tell them to screw off because he was busy brewing. Bottles of New Albion, bottle-conditioned and featuring that funky yeast at the bottom that at the time was very alien to American brewing, were still selling out at prices high above typical distributed beers. Uh, I read that it was around $0.95 to $1.05. New Albion was also perfectly timed for the food culture of Northern California. In 1971, Chef Alice Waters had opened Chez Panisse, kicking off a revolution in New American cuisine that, among other things, urged chefs to use locally sourced ingredients because those were almost always better than the food shipped to a grocery store. Ingredients, their quality, and their backstory were more and more a focus for both food and drink, and New Albion's combination of story and product was a perfect fit for the trends of the time. As McAuliffe said, See, Now he's going to sound like, yeah, a, what, black what McAuliffe Louis- like, like, like a black man from Louisiana. It's just like cosmetics or bread. In the big mass market. <laughs> That's why we don't advertise. Small, high-quality food places don't have to. Larry, you don't have to be afraid of Jack McAuliffe. I'm terrified of this man. I'm terrified <laughs> of this man. Do you, do you know what this man has meant to beer? I'm terrified of McAuliffe. Him and Fritz Maytag. I, yeah, have, the, uh... I have done my job to instill fear in everyone. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want Fritz Maytag knocking on my door with this um lock lichen with these, were, with these werewolves, the lichens, and the vampires. I... He would he would social distance. He probably... <laughs> um, oh, I think it's also worth noting. I haven't written this into the story, but McAuliffe and Maytag had a. It seems there's not a ton written about it. Um, it kind of just comes up in, in in side mentions, but it seems like they had a very good, healthy relationship. They respected each other. They they championed kind of the same causes, especially when like you know beer. laws needed to be changed. So yeah, they loved beer. There's no story of these two being, you know, rivals or hating each other. Oh God! There wasn't a lot of uh, spirit of competition back in the day. If you if you were uh, involved in the beer scene and were not, you know, one of the very large brewers, then you were very much deemed like a, a, a 
comrade, gotcha. like a, a friend. Seems like that's pretty prevalent in the industry that's, today, right? Brewers yeah, there's a ton of camaraderie yeah. within within the beer industry today, and that's one of the my favorite things about the industry. That said, there are 8,100 breweries right now, uh, so there is a lot more competition than there ever has been. There's still a ton of like information sharing, and you know. Hey, if you need a, a pitch of yeast uh, or you need a bag of malt or something like that, you just call it, you know, the brewer, the brewer down the street and uh, he or she will help you out for sure. But um, yeah, every once in a while you run into a little bit of more sort of cantankerous mm-hmm. uh, uh, relations than, than in the past. Yeah, we can get into evil twin brewing at some, later on some point. Yeah, right. <laughs> Sadly, the major problem with McAuliffe's business model was that it gave such incredible loving attention to the beer, but none to the necessary evil of having to make money. It, it wasn't the lack of advertising uh, because the beer always sold out, but just the limited production capability. Because while Anchor's more traditional and larger volume production was able to sustain its business and propel it towards its success today, that new Albion was just four brewers after disciple Don Barkley knocked on the door and was able to talk his way into an initially beer for pay internship. And this small warehouse equipped with scrap together equipment was just a business that was unsustainable, especially at the time. A big part of that was because California brewers were not legally permitted to operate a taproom brew pub or sell directly to consumers. And while McAuliffe and Maytag were able to successfully appeal to change that law, it still required brewers to have a separate space to sell the beer that also included food, which McAuliffe just couldn't afford. McAuliffe made many attempts to turn a profit, including redesigning the bottling, Uh, attempting to acquire a second larger brewing space, but all of that was just more expensive and any increased sales couldn't cover the cost. Mm. In November of 1982, six short years after opening, New Albion closed its doors. But even then... Uh, Sad. I know, it's a bummer. (laughs) Even then, New Albion had established a model for a different kind of brewery, assembled more from scratch than purchased equipment, with unique beers that prioritized great taste over traveling well with a small staff of dedicated workers who all participated in and took pride in the product. Hey, that's that's awesome. I mean, that's it reminds me of the first brewery I worked in that was totally like cobbled together, you know, just old equipment that wasn't really meant to be brewery. It wasn't purpose built for being brewery equipment. Like the louder ton that I used to brew on, this was at San Francisco Brewing Company, which is no longer around. Well, there's a new version of it that's a totally different brand, um, different brewery. But the original location on Columbus uh, Street in uh, North Beach in San Francisco the louder tone was basically a, like a big bathtub and you had to straddle it in order to, uh, to, to do grain out is what it's called, where you end up uh, hoeing out all the like hot grains after you're done using them for, for uh, after you're done yielding all your, all your wort. And so it was really awful because you had to straddle this thing. It was like three feet wide. And then you'd uh, open up a hatch on the side of it um, and then use a hoe to, to basically just pull out all the hot grain, but all the grains like 150 degrees. And it's upstairs, of course, because this was a gravity-fed brewery. And so it was the highest point in the brewery, pretty much. And um, so it was where all the steam from the day had collected. So it was just hot. And then as you're hoeing the stuff out, it just releases new steam every single time, you you know, every single strike of the of the shovel or the hoe. And so it was just <laughs> the most, like, it was just a, a steam bath, like, uh-huh. in your crotch for, like, <laughs> and 45 minutes. It was just awful. Fortunately, the, the, everything that went into the beer had already passed through the latter town at that point. So there was, oh, there was no steamy crotch issues at that point. <laughs> That's great. I will say, one, it's always very obvious, but it's always so appreciated and different to me when you can tell that just, you know, when you're at a brewery and the person at the bar 
really takes pride in what the beer is. Mm, yeah, you know, I think those yeah. breweries stand apart. Yeah, there's real kind of emotional buy-in. Now, uh, the Oxford Companion to Beer says that New Albion is considered the first American microbrewery. Mm. And yeah, Rich, mm. I know you mm. might oh, take a little oh, issue with that. Oh, oh, oh. Do you want to comment, Rich, or do you want to just let the hmm say it all? No, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you finish your your <laughs> correct statement. <laughs> then I'm gonna slay you. Uh, uh, wait, is that not? Is there more to it that's incorrect? Well, short. Well, have you ever heard of Anchor? I have. I'm not. Heard. I'm not trying to be a shill for Anchor and just say it's brewery world. They, you know, they just did amazing things, and I really like their beer. It's a very good brewery. But yeah. they started doing this in 1965. You know, Fritz's kind of harebrained idea to buy this this you know tanking brewery in 1965 just on on a hope and a, a wish that to me is the start of craft brewing cool you know he turned he turned this brewery around sure it opened in 1896 so it had some years in it but he made it you know he revived it you know he basically uh made it do a renewal of its vows <clears throat> to, to quality and and craft and uh for that reason it very much is, is first craft brewery. I mean, if yeah. you look at beers like, you know, Liberty Ale and Old Foghorn and Anchor Porter and Christine, you know, I mean, these beers were around before 1977 when New Albion opened up. Nothing against New Albion and nothing against Jack McAuliffe. But, you know, if you're going to say who was first, yeah. I don't see how you can argue, against, you know, anything other than Anchor. Yeah. And I obviously don't disagree partly because when I was putting together sort of the uh, story of this, these two episodes... Anchor was just an undeniable part of it. Fritz Maytag is an undeniable mm. figure. It's hugely important. And I included saying that the Oxford Companion to Beer specifically has, has that, is the one that says it's considered mm. the first American microbrewery because I agree in a lot of ways. And to me, New Albion, what is important about it is kind of those little bits of in-between culture, the cultural approaches and the, the attitude and, and the employees and their involvement and everything, kind of all the little scraps that came together kind of in the way like we talked at the beginning of the first part it's sort of intangible it's kind of ambiguous but i think when you kind of look at it as a whole you can see there's a sort of impact there Mm -hmm. but then obviously anchor itself has its more clear line of this is when it started yeah honestly there are a lot of articles and and writings that i went through that that straight up said new albion was the first craft brewery Mm. and i think often that was said in the context of Anchor having technically been around since the 1800s and New mm-hmm. Albion being kind of the first that literally did not exist in any form, way, shape, or form and started during yeah. the modern era. But yeah, it's like mm-hmm. you said, basically Fritz Maytag, he bought that old brewery and then he kickstarted everything. Yeah. This is something that doesn't really have a definitive academic answer. But, you know, I think a lot of people at the time would consider a microbrewery to be very small. I mean, that, that's that's how, you know, what the term came from. And yes. so if they look at something like Anchor, that, you know, I don't know how much, what, what its capacity was back in 1965. But it certainly, you know, I'm sure it had some big looking equipment and some big fermenters, yeah. big, big boil kettle and things like that. I think to a lot of people, they'd say, oh, you know, I, I see that. I can't fit those that equipment in my living room. Therefore, it's not a microbrewery. Yeah, so the, the definition for what could and couldn't be a microbrewery has changed over the years and we don't really use that term very much anymore anyway because we don't really want to pigeonhole we don't want to associate quality with size the idea Uh that craft beer is really the product and craft brewers can be any size for the most part you know there's an upper threshold of six million barrels a year you know these days at least the the definition is six six million barrels a year which is a lot of beer that's three percent of the domestic beer market 
but anyway, uh, with Anchor, though, I mean, if you listen to, you know, folks that were on the front lines at the time, like Mark Carpenter, um, he's uh, an old retired brewmaster from from Anchor. He was there in the Fritz Maytag days. So, like, he worked for Anchor before Fritz took over. And then um, he had this crazy eccentric, uh, you know, young new boss all of a sudden that um, had to whip Mark and, and the rest of the of the ragtag hippie team of brewers into shape. You know, they were all feeling it out you know, sort of brewing by feel. And, and he said that the times of, I mean, cause they had no cash flow, but they also knew how they needed to repair all the equipment. So the things that they did to sort of DIY some, some band-aids and fix stuff so that they could make these incremental improvements, you know, they're hilarious stories. Just think like band-aids and bubble gum and scotch tape and things like that, you know, and the, at the same time, there are a bunch of young brewers that are trying to have fun while they do all this stuff. Yeah. So that, that definitely, that spirit was, very much a part of Anchor, even though Anchor looked like a larger, more well-established brewery. Is there is there anybody brewing any of these new Albion recipes at all? Well, I know that in, I think it was in 2009, Don Barkley, that fourth employee, who basically was a guy who loved the beer and went there and begged for a job and was turned away and then came back later on and begged for a job again and finally they let him work as an intern. I think it was in 2009, he, he replicated the the recipe yep. i don't i don't know that there's anything going on right now rich do you know of anything that is specifically well that was that so don was sort of coming out of the woodwork after um sort of a mini retirement uh back in the in yeah in 2009 that coincided with the first san francisco beer week first edition of san francisco beer week um so there was a beer i can't remember who brewed it i don't know if it was anchor or maybe 21st amendment or speakeasy some local sort of decently sized local brewery brewed this beer um, with Don, but Don was in the middle of opening up a new brewery called Napa Smith in, uh, in Napa. And so Don was sort of like, uh, you know, trying to recreate this old recipe um, while getting some press and some momentum and probably some uh, funders to open up Napa Smith. Um, I don't remember much about that beer because that was the first San Francisco beer week. I don't think I remember anything from, from that week. Um, but I met Don several times. Great guy. And uh, definitely has put his heart and soul into Napa Smith. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm sort of just spinning tails rather than actually answering the question that beer, new Albion beer um, ended up getting resurrected a couple different times. There was a collab with uh, Jim cook of uh, Sam Adams or Boston beer company. Oh, okay. And so he wanted to resurrect that beer and he went on tour with Jack and had a bit of a speaking circuit back in the maybe 2012, 2013. And then uh, that beer, there was hope that that beer was going to be brewed, you know, consistently in collaboration with, uh, with Boston beer company, but that ended up, I guess sales didn't work out. I mean, I don't know. It, it wasn't, it wasn't a success. So it was like the original new Albion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They did um, it again. And then Don, uh, Jack's daughter uh, started New Albion again. I think it's like if you look in the government records, New Albion is an extant, you know, open brewery um, that's owned by Jack's daughter. Uh, I don't know that they're actually producing any beer though these days. I see. And speaking of uh, Don Barkley, uh, I'm going to wrap up the story. I love this quote by him because you know it all didn't last long. It really never grew beyond just this tiny little operation in a warehouse in Sonoma. Don Barkley was right when he said, We knew it could work. We knew it was the right idea. We knew the whole concept was good. That was a great dramatic pause. <laughs> a couple decades Mike later, drop. here we are.
Uh, so that's the story of New Albion. It's also the story of Anchor and Fritz Maytag and craft brewing in general in the mm-hmm. United States. Let's move on to our beer tasting. Uh, yeah. Rich, Rich, I know that this, I like this choice in beer because it is different, but also at the same time, it does have a direct connection to the story we just told of Jack McAuliffe. So you want to take it away? Yeah, you bet. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. So um, so Fuller's ESB uh there are probably some some knowers or some knowers some listeners in the know uh that some are probably knowers. like Ooh, what, you know, or what, knowers what? in the listen they could be <laughs> knowers in the listen why would uh why would rich choose fuller's first of all it's not an american beer and second of all it's not even owned by fuller's anymore uh so fuller's e- e- esb and london pride and other famous beers from from fuller's are actually brewed now by asahi brewing company in out of japan so if they, if you notice the theme here Sapporo and asahi Kirin is also a Japanese firm that's uh, buying up breweries um, as well. The drinking public in uh, in Japan is uh, is what am I trying to say? It's shrinking, I guess I should say. That population is aging, and uh, beers being beer sales are dropping pretty fast in Japan. So there are a lot of larger Japanese breweries that are sort of on a buying spree these days. So Asahi uh, bought Fuller's, and Fuller's still exists as a pub chain in England, but they are no longer are brewing their own beer. So that's a gut punch. That's a bummer for me because I really love Fuller's. I love their beers. Um, hopefully, they're not going to change. Hopefully, the recipes are going to stay intact and the quality is going to stay when, the when same. When was that that they, they bought it? It was earlier this year. It was early oh. t- uh, 2020. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's very recent, yeah. So I think there are a lot of people that are really pissed off and probably are never going to drink a Fuller's again. I think that's the wrong move. I think Fuller's is still going to be a really delicious beer, and um, as we great. drink our ESBs here, we'll be able to. It's one of decide, my favorites. Decide for ourselves. Favorites. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. I really do love this beer. Cool. Yeah. What do you like about it, Larry? Well, I just love that it's kind of it's. Uh, look, how I describe it may not be accurate. I just like it's a kind of like I love the malty sweetness of it. Mm-hmm. It's very sessionable. Um, yeah. yeah, I just I just like the I just like the flavor profile. I just love. I just love how it feels on my tongue. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. You know, I, I don't ever like when people are, I don't like when people say that they don't, you know, they don't think that their description is going to be accurate. They they don't know for sure how to describe a beer. Uh, beer is such a subjective experience. You know I mean? You know, t- turning it into a podcast and talking about it with all these big words and sort of academic approach is one thing, but at the end of the day, you know, what's in the glasses is art. It's well, just a subjective experience. Well, Rich, look, we, we fear two people around here. We fear Jack McAuliffe. Yep. And, and we fear you. <laughs> yep. Well, because we respect you. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not go. Let's not go too far. The deal with this beer, especially it's tricky to, to describe because it's English style and English style is not so much about bombastic flavors and what you know it's like you taste a, an american ipa you're like whoa you know this smells like hops this smells like uh you know tangerine and and pine trees and things like that you know english beers really aren't about that they're about balance and so mm. they should taste malty they should smell and taste malty and they should smell and taste hoppy and you should get a little bit of uh hints of fruit from the yeast so there's a lot of there's a complex interplay of stuff going on and nothing really rises above the the general sort of harmony of everything in the beer mm. um so it's a little bit difficult to ascertain however i think when you look at it and you, and you taste it and you smell it it tastes totally different from certainly from you know the the you know the macro loggers that are out there um that jack mcauliffe and fritz maytag and other folks um were trying to offer an alternative to and so the esb is one of those styles of beer um or specifically one of those beers um that 
really took over um, fascination in the uh, minds of, of American craft brewers, particularly in the 1980s and 90s. So ESBs were everywhere, and they gave rise to. And, the and what does ESB ale. stand for, Rich? Yeah. So thanks. Uh, it's an extra special bitter. Bitter. Okay. Yeah. So a bitter is a family. Just because you keep saying English style, and it almost seems like English style beer would be what it ends up. Being. Right. Right. But yeah, no, it's a that's a false friend. There, it's a misnomer. Um, yeah. So the uh, E's for well, so all right, here we go. So bitters <laughs> are a family of beer in uh, in England. Okay, in Britain, special bitters are so a brewery will typically brew more than one bitter. They might have an ordinary bitter. They might have a golden bitter, uh, sort of the gentler end. Then they might have in their premium category, they might have something called the best bitter, maybe a special bitter. And then there's the strong bitter. A special bitter might also be a strong bitter. There are a lot of different names and they're, they're not that codified. They don't necessarily mean one thing. It's not like a premium bitter or special bitter always has to be this one thing. So an extra special bitter was Fuller's brand name for this beer. And there's, they're the only brewery in, in Britain that has an ESB. So uh, in the U.S., we use ESB to mean it's just like a general style. But in England, ESB is actually specifically Fuller's. Wow. So, yeah, so Americans really fell in love with this, this beer and assumed it was a beer style, but it really only is one beer. And, and this beer that you have in your hands here is the progenitor of this huge movement within the United States of the amber ale. So, um, yeah, so go ahead and let's pour it. Yep. And the first thing you'll see is this beautiful amber color, right? This mm, nice mm. caramel color. Gorgeous. Gorgeous. It is a photogenic beer. It's oh, beautiful. I love this fucking beer. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, all right. So it looks like caramel. What is that going to do, uh, to, to the nose? What, what do you think it's going to smell like? If you see caramel color, what should you smell? Smell caramel. Or a little bit there of toast, yeah, maybe, some maybe a little, some, bit, a yeah. little bit of sweetness, some bread, some like cooked bread, a little bit of cooked breadiness. Yeah, sure. Like toastiness. Well, yeah, so, so specifically the caramel color can either be from toasty flavors or caramel flavors or both. Okay. And toast is sort of like caramelization without sugar. Caramel is caramel with sugar. Okay. So you don't know if it's going to be sweet or not until you actually taste it. Mm. But smelling it, you should also smell bread. You got yes. caramel, you got toast. Um, so those are, those are malt-derived flavors. And we're talking about British beer being a balance of malt, hops, and yeast uh, flavors or fermentation flavors. So we got the malt flavors down. What uh, hop flavors or what hop aromas do you smell? I, get a, I guess I get, a, I get a little hay. I get a little hay, I think, a little. Okay. Not a ton. So hay is, honestly, it's a little bit more in the grain category. So oh. when people are drinking beers and they're, they're looking for hop aromas, they often think, is apple hop aromas? So no, apple, no, that's more of a fermentation character. Okay. So, so good to notice that. Okay, um, you get a yeah, little so, appleiness, but yeah, it's so, it's so uh, for, to me, it's just so caramely. It's hard to get past that. It like is very. And caramely. like you said, in the balance uh, to the, I know this isn't totally what you meant by, it, but in terms of it being balanced, I really smelled just like straight caramel. Yeah. As I okay. keep sniffing it like a maniac. <laughs> nice. Well, you can also take a sip too. I don't want to. I don't want to deprive. I've it. already sipped it. Good for you. So. The famous hop aromas nowadays, the hip hop aromas are things like the uh, hip hop, hip-hop hooray. You heard it. You heard it. Hip hop so aroma. Go ahead. Things like citrus aromas, uh, particularly grapefruit, tangerine, um, things like, you know, stone fruit, like peaches, certainly tropical fruit, mango, uh, guava, things like that, uh, pine, uh, marijuana. All those things come from American hops and New Zealand hops. Okay, the hops in this beer are English. And so you're not going to get those aromas. You typically will get English hop aromas of black tea, 
herbs, um, mm. a little bit of earthiness, like a like a woody or like a wet wood or wet bark or something like that. Um, okay. Maybe a little bit of mushroom, a little bit of even. I, this sounds weird to say, even a little bit of cheese. It doesn't sound good, but in in the context of the beer, I think it's. I do get the cheese. I get the cheese since cool. you said it. Cool. So yeah, so English hops give you herbs, wood, and and uh, savory aroma. All right, and then the English yeast that's in here. Typically, Manny, I, I like the the apple note. Um, you make it apple or pear um, from this beer, uh, or sorry, from this English yeast. But Fuller's yeast is a specific strain of English yeast that has apple and pear, and oh, yeah. is famous for orange marmalade. Mm. You smell orange marmalade, and if oh. so, it's from that yeast. I smell that orange marmalade. Mm. So awesome! But you're trying to tell me you're trying to tell me. What I said about hay is garbage. Is that what you're telling me? It's not garbage. <laughs> no, it is grain. Grain and garbage are different. But you say so, it's you not say garbage. It, it not. It's not garbage when you consider there is no garbage. But you're saying that I could smell hay, or you're saying yeah, no, you're legit. I, I think hay is fine to smell. Uh, but get, apple uh, is kind of spot on, huh? I get a little hint. Oh, stop! Of... <laughs> oh, stop it, Maddie! Oh, stop it! Within Anybody can say apple. It takes, hay, it takes, Larry, it takes someone who's really searching out a special smell to say hay. <laughs> hey. hey so where are we i think we totally derailed rich's <laughs> tasting glass <laughs> well i'm just i'm anyway, just I smell buzzed enough that i'm i'm working on a hay pun i don't think i want to go there hey hey so um yeah so the caramel should not dominate if this beer is fresh and when you drink it in the uk it is fresh well should be and uh caramel is there but it's still, you're still going to get plenty of those savory hop aromas as well. Um, kind hold of on, apple. hold on, hold on, hold on. But you're saying, yep. is it still brewed in the UK or is it brewed yeah. in Japan now? No, it's still brewed in the UK. They still own okay. the, I mean, the, the brewery still it. exists. Got it. They, they just bought it. They just bought it. They just bought yeah. It. yeah. Yeah. It's in West London and it's currently owned. Yeah. The money is Japanese at this point. But um, this beer was exported from England to the US and being out in LA where you guys picked up this beer. Um, it might not be, you know, at its like peak of freshness. It's still a good beer, still enjoyable. But as this beer ages, as any beer ages, uh, you get a little bit of a, um, a decrease in hop aroma, hmm. a decrease in hop bitterness, and you get a little bit of a kind of a. Um, it's it's called, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. I'm getting some. I'm getting some prune, man. I'm getting yeah. prune. Perfect. Perfect. I like this. So, what you get is something called the matterization. And so. Sorry. Um, what was that again? Malt. Matterization, okay, it's like Madeira wine. So Madeira wine is is wine that gets intentionally cooked um, in uh, you know in the islands off of Portugal. And so what they do is they uh, you know by cooking it um, and they also age it oxidatively. A lot of the fresh fruit aromas turn into sort of dried fruit aromas. So you know instead of grape, it turns into raisin. Instead of plum, it turns ah! into plum. instead of uh, okay. you know you might get instead of um, sugar or honey aromas, you might get brown sugar or caramel. And, and things like that. And, 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 and this beer undergoes the same sort of thing. Any beer undergoes the same sort of process as it ages, uh, especially if it has a caramel malt base. And so this beer has a caramel malt base. And so we've lost some of the hop aroma and some of the hop bitterness, and we're getting an increase in the caramelization note. So you feel me when I say prune, like I'm not I crazy. Totally do. No, I'm with you, man. I totally, I totally, I, I agree. Mine, mine has a hint of that too. I don't find it distracting, but no, I mean, either. Since I've had this beer in in London, you know, the steps from the brewery, I know how different it can. They be. wouldn't let you inside. But both, uh, well, they would. They would have. 
It would if I asked and I had the right, uh, if I had pulled the right strings, but no, I haven't tried to get in. Higgins, Higgins, man, you also said this, but I'm getting now this honey, honey. I get honey. Uh, yeah. Well, is that crazy? Not, no, that's not crazy. So, so what does honey smell like? Honey smells like flowers, but it also smells like, uh, I mean, there's a sort of a waxy honey oxidation thing because honey, when you get it from a beehive, uh, has sat out exposed to oxygen for a long time, right? So it takes months for the bees to accumulate enough honey in the hive. And so that oxidative effect is that that honeyfication or matterization of sugars. Okay, so oxygen and time take their toll and develop really interesting new complex aromas that we adore. We adore caramel. We adore prunes and raisins and Madeira wine and maple syrup. Uh, and honey. So yeah, that has occurred to this beer in ways that you will not notice if you have it fresh at the brewery in a, a pub that's serving a really fresh cask of this beer. Mm. So I am not here to shit on this beer in any way. I think we're all drinking right now. States are delicious. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, but now this is one of my favorite beers. Now I have to go to yeah. um, to steps London. From, well, steps from the brewery since they won't let it. me in. Since they won't let me in. To have some. <laughs> well, they're also, I will say, I'll, if I can plug one place in the L.A. area, if anyone listening is in L.A., and Larry, I know you're in L.A., um, Yorkshire Square Brewery down in Torrance does, awesome. I mean, obviously, it's not quite the same, but they do an ESB. They do, it's all, it's all obviously very British. Uh, I've heard British people, when they're visiting, enjoy going there because it's the one place that feels very authentic to British beer, but they make a lot of really great uh, oh, wow. pub bitters and, and ESBs and stuff like that. Um, it's really That's cool. Yeah, if you're can, can I ask a question? Are there, because I know there's other, uh, like I got your point about, you know, Americans thought ESB was a style, but there are some other um, breweries that do ESBs. Are there any in um, any that you, that, that, that you know off the top of your head, Rich, that you would um, that you can find? recommend? Or? Yeah, in, in the States? Yeah, in the States, um, yeah. Yeah, you know, honestly, it's not that commonly brewed anymore. I was saying it's such a touchstone style for craft beer in the 80s and 90s. But, like, amber ales have sort of gone uh, gone underground a little bit. ESB have gone underground. Um, you know, Red Hook ESB is, like, the big granddaddy of, of, of them all. And that's still available. You can still find it. But uh, they've sort of fallen on hard times. You know, Larry, the only other one I can think of is one I brewed for years over at Thirsty Bear in San Francisco called Meyer ESB, and that's a that's a super yummy beer. But I can't think of other ESBs off okay. off the top of my head. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm, you're exposing a weakness. I'm, I'm brain is <laughs> my brain is full, and I can't remember any more beers. Well, that's great. But Maddie, yeah, Yorkshire Yorkshire Square Brewing Company sounds right up my alley. I'd love it's to. It's really go good. Try yeah, come that. on out. I like it a lot. The taste, but I've heard mm -hmm. it's also very very authentic in the approach. That's cool. So the way you mentioned authenticity brings up the kind of a debate that Brits are having right now. That a lot of the folks that are driving British beer, you know, quality and innovation, really craft, craft beer folks. And so it's a lot of the younger generation that really kind of thumbs their noses at a lot of these traditional, quote unquote, authentic British beers. So things like Strong Bitters, things like Best Bitters, um, Porters, things like that are not very popular. Uh, among the the younger crowds and the older crowds, um, they tend to really prefer specific brands that they that they remember, and so there's not a lot of innovation among uh, a lot of these classic styles in Britain right now. You know, I'm sure you know listeners are going to come up with a, a handful of examples that would prove me wrong, and that's that's fine. But fine, I think a lot of the English for the really most authentic English beers, it's it's helpful to to step outside of England. Sometimes. 
breweries. You know, I mean, there, there are a few yeah. classic breweries in England still doing it. Uh, Timothy Taylor, Coniston's, um, you know, Sam Smith's, uh, Marble uh, Brewery, you know, a bunch of them are out there. Um, but, you know, folks like Yorkshire Square um, in LA and shoot, what's the one? There's one in San Diego. Too. I can't remember right now. Um, anyway, yeah, there, there are a bunch all over that, that are doing really delicious English style beers. And then also Yorkshire Square makes me think of Yorkshire. So England really is a tapestry of different brewing cultures and brewing regions, different flavors. Um, you know, a, a brown ale from the north is going to taste sort of like a London style brown porter down south, whereas, uh, you know, porters from other parts of the country are to taste different from both of those. So, um, you know, Yorkshire mm-hmm. has particularly, you know, interesting water chemistry and uh, ends up creating beer style or beers that taste very different from beers brewed in the rest of the country. Um, even the pubs serve beers differently. You know, some, sometimes they like to have uh, foam on their beers, uh, particularly up North down South. If you don't fill the beer to the very brim and have zero foam on it whatsoever, they will send it back to the bar. Um, actually, that. you know, I said, yeah, they, they'll send it back to the bar. If there's any present say you're cheating me, you know, you owe me another ounce of beer. So there's a <laughs> lot of different, a lot of different, cultural expression yeah. and uh, yeah. can i ask real quick can i ask real quick i know this is like i don't want to open up the whole can of worms because there's a whole subject but uh cascale yeah can is cascale does that cover like a variety of because st- i know i know cascale basically from like like yorkshire square or like specifically limited random places will have a cascale and i like it i like the mm-hmm. flavor and i can recognize that taste but yeah, cool. can a lot of different styles be a cask? I mean, obviously it's an ale, but can multi- different styles be a cask ale? Is it one? Yeah. Is it very specific, or can you kind of do that brewing approach to a lot of different types of beer? Cask conditioned ale is similar to bottle conditioned beer in that finishing beer's fermentation inside the vessel from which that beer will be poured. All right, so if you dispense or pour that beer into a glass directly from the fermenter at okay. a brewery like that's that's a highlight when you go to the brewery and you taste ah, it straight from the tank that's that it's super fresh and the same thing can happen whether it's a cast beer or bottle conditioned beer the idea is that a final fermentation has occurred that imparts uh certainly uh, uh conditioning or carbonation to the beer but also imparts any last you know nuances of uh, fermentation flavor from the yeast and so that's what cast conditioned beer is and it was for a long time before we had pressurized vessels um you know that you know like big stainless steel tanks and things like that that could hold on to pressure and ferment a beer under pressure and you know things like refrigeration that would also help hold the carbonation for for centuries beer was shipped in big oak barrels and the bar the pub that served the beer uh would be in charge of um kind of finishing up its fermentation uh you know the beer would be shipped with live yeast in it and it would attain a slight sparkle uh, a little bit of carbonation, um, but because it was in these pitch-lined oak barrels, um, they weren't entirely uh, able to hold on to carbonation, and the bars didn't have a lot of artificial refrigeration that could keep the beers cold. Again, cold helps carbonation to to accumulate. And so if you, you know, for years, uh, you drank a beer at cellar temperature and slightly bubbly and it often had yeast because it was served from the vessel from which often it, was, had what? it was fermented. It. Yeah. So any beer, to answer your question, any beer can be cast conditioned. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah, thanks. I got a quick question. I got a quick question. Yeah. And you don't have to give me a ton of stuff, and it doesn't have to be coleslaw, but (laughs) what would be a good meal to pair with this beer? Bangers and mash. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can go the traditional route and do British food, so bangers and mash is going to work. You know, certainly, uh, you know, cheeses, uh, pies, things like that, savory pies, they've got things like 
um, you know, mincemeat pie, beef pie, uh, um, what did I, I just said? So, oh yeah, cheese. So like a plowman's lunch is going to work great. Shepherd's pie something like that. Um, all that's going to be awesome with it. Is fish going to be good with this? Do you like caramel with fish? Doesn't sound good. No. Doesn't sound that good to me either. However, there are caramelized sauces in a lot of Vietnamese. They go with uh, like freshwater fish, catfish, and stuff like that. So mm. there might be a possibility there. Um, but in general, yeah, I'd probably stay away from seafood with this. Okay. Um, so, yeah, things like potatoes, uh, mm. uh, cheeses, meats, onions, things like that. But what, what's uh, is there something in you know outside of England that we could pair with that? What do you guys, we did food pairing last week. So mm. this beer is probably at a five or six on intent. Yeah. Five or six food that's not seafood. Any ideas? I don't know. I have some French fries would be cheating because it's potatoes, but yeah, well, I always, some... not a bad idea. I'm trying to think of like a, about, chicken, uh... a chicken dish that would like. Uh, I'm thinking of like some sort of fried chicken. I feel like in my head, I like fried chicken with honey or like with a little bit of sweetness or with like maple syrup ah, and, and mm-hmm. waffles or yeah, something like, like that. And I like that kind of sweet carameliness with a fried chicken. That's great. Yeah, I a think grilled cheese. Great. A grilled cheese. Awesome. Yeah, I think grilled cheese would be great. What about a uh, cheese pizza? Um, what about, Larry, going back to your, your barbecue, barbecue chicken with uh, grilled scallions? I was thinking about barbecue. I was going to say barbecue. Yeah, that would work great. Yeah, barbecue brisket's going to work. Um, let's go over to uh, let's go over to China. Um, how about just a, like a, a chow mein, chicken chow mein or something like that? Um, you, know, you have some soy sauce and onions as the base of that sauce. You have some, uh, some pasta. Know. Some noodles to sort of uh, dovetail you know, like with a mushu of pork the aspect of the beer. Yeah, mushu pork would be great with it. Mm. Um, and so, you know what? I, we haven't done a listener question in a while. To cap off the episode, I liked this question a lot. And Rich, I feel like it's one I might have even asked you before. Um, but I hold love. Hold on, hold on, hold on. What? Uh, I think shiitake mushrooms could work. Oh, um, so... How about like a tonkotsu ramen <laughs> with. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, tonkatsu would even work fine. Um, what about orange chicken? Orange chicken works nicely. I'm down with that. Um, what's what's the what's the like flaming cheese dish from Greece? Sakanyaki or something? Ooh, I don't know. Sakanyaki. I think that could work. I'm not up on mm. my Greek cheese dishes. There's uh yeah there's oh uh, how about a porchetta? Ooh. Italian porchetta. Slice ooh, like I don't know what that is, but ooh. With some uh, polenta or even any sort of sausage. You know, German sausage is going to work. How about a Polish kibasa with some sauerkraut? It's going to be nice. Oh. Um, And andouille? What about an andouille sausage? Andouille's going to be nice. Mm. Uh, You might not want it too spicy. I don't know if the ESP is going to work with spice that way. I see, because that that raises the... um... The intensity. intensity. The intensity. Yeah. Gotta match yeah. that. How about a like a pilaf? Ooh, uh, um, what's it called? Paella could work nicely. Oh, um, trying to think Mexico or Brazil or Argentina. I'm sure there's some. There. A saga, a saganaki. Yes, yes, that's the the Greek cheese dish I was talking about, right? Oh, 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 yes. Okay, yes. I just looked it up. Nice. Um, there we go. <laughs> Um, I think that I think that gives a fair a fair number of answers. I think that I think. That, oh, oh, that... how about uh, uh, harissa couscous? <laughs> like a little that. bit of harissa in it, but couscous, a um, tagine, with some chicken, some potatoes, oh, some onions, some tomatoes. Uh, yeah, that's gonna work nicely. Guys, I can't wait to go to a restaurant again. I know. Well, how about a gyro? A gyro sandwich? 
I was gonna say. Ooh, well, Euro. Well, I was gonna say I've yeah. I've switched my cereal since last time away from no frosted mini wheats. No, we're we're now on. I'm now on Honey Nut Cheerios, uh, mm-hmm. and honestly, might go pretty okay with the ESB. You are. We're currently drinking the Honey Nut Cheerios. Of, yeah. This is this is honestly totally fits pretty well. It complements. Wow. Wow. Uh, and then, so, all right. So let's get back to that. Let's get back to that list. I think we've given plenty of food options. So let's get if back you, to the... If you insist. <laughs> we, can, <laughs> we can name food all day, but this isn't the you know name and food podcast. That sounds good. That might be a good idea. How about I do that accent again that... <laughs> that oh, please do. That concerned Rich so much. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm... I... I'm enjoying some peace and drinking this beer there. I don't know. If <laughs> um, so, so let's get this. So this listener question that I liked a lot um, from D from D. Cool. Like the pod, you know, I appreciate that part. Uh, Rich, if you started your own brewery today, what would be your signature style? Mm. So what would be that one? What would be the Let one? Me make a guess. Let me make a guess. Let me make a yeah, guess. Yeah, Larry, Let me please make... make a guess. I'm going to make a guess. He loves a pilsner. He loves a pilsner. So he's going to have other styles, but there's going to be a pilsner. There's going to be a badass motherfucking pilsner. <laughs> Rich? Sounds good. Uh, honestly, Larry, I appreciate that idea, but it's not where I was going to go. Oh, shit. I was thinking more <laughs> like a Fruit Loops and Cotton Candy Dr. Fauci. <laughs> Kettle Sour Seltzer. Delicious. So, no, honestly, so um, Montana, where I live, has a bunch of great uh, breweries doing a bunch of good IPAs, pale ales. There's some stouts out here, a lot of scotch ales, and then a decent handful of, uh, of good Pilsners and box too. So we've kind of mm. covered our bases for American beer. We've covered our bases for German beer. Um, but we have we, it's, it's kind of hard to find uh, a lot of Belgian styles, a lot of English styles. I love me a good English style, but it's an uphill battle to sell it. Uh, they're again, they're balanced beers that are not very sexy, so they're not media attention grabbing and stuff like that. Um, so whittling it down, I'm thinking uh, Belgian style is kind of where I would go with that. To you know, that's a tradition. Let's get down to a more specific style. Ooh, you know what? I miss a double. What happened to Double? They had a moment, you know, back in like mm-hmm. 2007, 2008, mm. 2009. Uh, American brewers were starting to experiment with Belgian yeast. There was b- better availability of Belgian yeast. Abbey yeast and Trappist yeast were kind of like the, the, the darling child of uh, the Belgian yeast family um, that Americans were brewing with. I fell absolutely head over heels in love with Doubles. And uh, they stopped making them. <laughs> yeah. That's a Rich, fan, there, that's was, a there was one answer. beer... There was one beer that you brewed in San Francisco that I, I when 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 you told me about it, I just always wanted to try it. Was you didn't you brew something that was like a white Russian? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a <laughs> the fun beer for sure. Yeah, that was um, I called it the Big Lebowski White Prussian, Ooh. and it was. <laughs> Did you sell it, or was so, it just a personal homebrew? No, no, I sold it. It was a cult hit at uh, Social Kitchen. I started brewing it in 2011. I came up with the recipe. I was driving up to. Sierra Nevada brewery to go to beer camp. And I came, I had, you know, four hours in the car to drive up there from, from San Francisco. And I came up with the recipe uh, on the ride up there. And I wanted to brew, I just read about a um, Grazer style of beer, which is the German term for the um, Polish beer style, the Grodziskia. So sometimes nowadays you can find a, a Grodziskia from here or from time to time. And that is a uh, smoked wheat beer. And it's usually about three or 4% alcohol. It's a session beer. Um, so I was like, well, 
screw it. Let's imperialize it. Let's let's brew a stronger version of of that beer. But I thought I fell in love with the idea of being a, a play on white Prussian. So um, I because that part of Poland and uh, and that part of Germany was in old Prussia. So I was like, all right, well, how do we brew a white Russian as a beer? So I was like, well, it's got to be high in alcohol. It's got to be kind of sweet, coffee-ish, and kind of milky looking. And so I was like, all right, well, why don't I do an unfiltered beer so it's kind of cloudy? And why don't I, uh, instead of doing the smoke in the Grazer or the Grodziskia, let's do coffee instead. There's a lot of crossover and uh, flavor between smoke and coffee. And um, I've got to keep it light in color the way a white Russian is. So I just added just enough coffee to get the, the flavor of it without impacting the color of the beer. And I left it pretty sweet and I left it, um, you know, it was like 11% alcohol. So, Oh my God, that sounds looked great. like a white Russian felt like a white and uh, had this sort of silly tie to it being a, this, you know, Imperial Grodziskia, which That's was great. never actually brewed. <laughs> and so, people, um, and people loved it, huh? People loved it. Yeah. I mean, they liked the, the Lebowski. Uh, That's great in, branding. But, yeah. You, you yeah. But it was there. a damn good beer. I was, it I was sounds great. About we got to brew that. We got to brew that. We got to bottle that. We got to bottle. <laughs> the recipe is on my website. You can go to the, go to my website, richhiggins.com. And, uh, sounds good. I don't know where it would be. I think it's in my creations. <laughs> How lofty does that sound? There's some, there's some page noodle around on my, uh, my 2013 website and uh, you'll be able to find uh, the find creations the of rich Higgins. Yeah. Awesome. Mm, mm, mm. So that about wraps it up. Uh, do you guys have anything rich? Do you have anything you want to plug? Well, first of all, thanks D for, for the question. Thank you. Um, glad you're glad you're listening. And, thanks uh, D. Yeah. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's open up a brewery and brew some Belgian doubles. Badass beers. Nice. Yeah. To plug. Let's see. Well, yeah, I want to plug the craft brews conference. Go, uh, go check that thing out and hopefully you'll be able yeah, to, that sounds to like a great way to spend time. To yeah. Virtual, uh, virtual talks. Um, I have, I had a project coming out. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm about to release some more preview lessons from my, my um, uh, certified Cicerone exam prep course. So it's a video course that's online currently at Vimeo.com. It's a great way to learn, um, but you do have to pay. Uh, it's uh, some, it's you know, ten hours of video, so I do sell it. But I'm uh, releasing um, some some preview lessons that are going to be little six or seven minute uh, snippets of those. Uh, videos and those will be free um, on YouTube and on Instagram and places like that. So follow me at Multi Rich on Instagram and Twitter, and um, check out my YouTube channel, Master Cicerone Rich Higgins. And uh, hopefully you'll fall in love with the stuff and head over to Vimeo.com to to take a deeper look and hopefully purchase a video. So thanks very much, everyone. Great. Hey, look, hey, look. I don't, I don't love to pl- I don't love to plug some things, but I'm, but I'm going to be doing a ten hour masterclass. <laughs> in Fritz Maytag McAuliffe accents <laughs> that annoy Rich Higgins, that makes him very nervous. Great. <laughs> so I would say um, it's it, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you, no doubt about that. So um, I would say go to my website. I'm not going to give you the web address yet because I'm still working on the website. But um, I'll let you know very soon. Okay. All right. Thank you, guys. That was great. Great. Are you okay, accepting well, hecklers? Check that out. <laughs> and <Asshole>. I'll say, <laughs> uh, and I'll say just because I just because I haven't plugged anything and have something to plug. If you have children, especially, uh, I wrote for a cartoon for Cartoon Network called Unikitty. Uh, I think a lot of the episodes are up on Hulu right now or on the Cartoon Network site. But it's just a really fun, light, breezy children's show that I think adults can enjoy. Uh, that a lot of the people who worked on it were a lot of good, fun people. So go check out Unikitty uh, is what I'll say. Awesome. And so that wraps everything up. Thank you so much for listening to Liquid Bread, everybody. 
if you have any questions for Rich or for Larry or any, you know, if you want any pointers on accent work, uh, email us at liquidbreadpodcast at gmail.com. DM us on Twitter at liquidbreadpod. Uh, until next time, happy beering. Happy beering, everyone. Happy beering. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Better every time. Salute. Oh.